We're in our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, and before we dive in, I want to remind us of the world in which Jesus came to minister. It was the first century in the Middle East with the Roman Empire ruling, and Jewish nationalist zealots, along with Jewish religious leaders, wanted nothing more than to overthrow Rome to gain freedom back for the people of God and to rebuild spiritual purity as worshipers. There was a ton of racial and cultural and nationalistic animosity, whether it was Jew versus Gentile, Israel versus Rome, clean versus unclean, it was all over the place. And Jesus, the Son of God, took upon Himself human flesh, arrived to proclaim that the kingdom of God had come and directed people to repent of sin and to place their faith in Him. He preached healing, but He also demonstrated it. He proclaimed justice, but He also made things right in people's lives. He announced freedom, and then He proceeded to command evil spirits to leave. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus... They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, whether we've read this passage, heard it before, studied it, or not, bring us fresh amazement at you, Jesus, not at secondary details, 
but at you, your power, your compassion. Show us Christ. Amen. We'll start with the story. Simple outline this morning, the story. Verse 1 says, they went across the lake, and that continues what we covered last week. We need to understand what the context of this scene involves. At the end of chapter 4, the disciples, we said last week, went from fear to fear. They went from fearing for their lives, understandably, because of this sudden storm that had come up out of nowhere and was threatening to swamp their boat. That's fear, real fear. They ended up at the end of chapter 4 in fear. Who is this son of man? They couldn't comprehend what had happened because only the creator could speak a simple word and have all of the power of nature immediately and completely obey. Mega storm became mega calm. Who is this man? You can imagine the whispering, the side glances at Jesus, the minds blown as a few guys rode, no more wind, it was utterly calm, while Jesus went back to sleep, still exhausted. Who is this son of man? The trip would have taken on average three to six hours. And since they left, chapter 4, verse 35 says, when evening came, it's most likely that they landed on the southeast shore of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. But if any of the disciples had this fantasy of building a fire and catching and cooking some fish and, and maybe taking a nap on the beach, verse 2 immediately tells us when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. They had finally escaped the paparazzi. Crowds of people had actually gotten into boats to chase after Jesus as he was trying to get away and begin a new place of ministry and rest from the exhaustion of the crowds constantly needing something. They had endured through the storm. They had finally landed on a quiet beach and the next customer's waiting. Coming out of the dark, literally and spiritually. This is the edge of a region known as the Decapolis. Take a look at this map. Decapolis simply means 10 cities. Up at the top was Capernaum. That's where they left the night before. And on the bottom uh, right, the red star I stuck there is uh, roughly where they would have landed. The beginning of a region on the east side of the Jordan River, if you can see that squiggle going down. The beginning of a region known as the Decapolis. This had never really been Jewish territory. Beyond the Jordan River, which was the eastern border of Israel, was frontier land. Clearly, Jews didn't live there because these people farmed pigs. Pigs were unclean animals. Bacon is not kosher, even today. And on top of that, the guy comes out of the tombs. Um, these were probably caves carved out of the hillside. This was basically a graveyard, and for Jews, any contact with the dead or any walking through a graveyard where, where people had been buried made you unclean. So if, if this guy had spiritual COVID-19, his viral load would have been through the roof, uncleanness on top of uncleanness. This is where Jesus has directed the disciples to head 
for his new place of ministry. He had been casting out evil spirits from the very beginning of his ministry. In fact, that's the first ministry scene that Mark gives us in Mark chapter 1. And uh, he had cast out other evil spirits from chapter 1 through um, the the rest of the the text that, that we've covered so far in detail. But in every other instance, it gets one or two verses of mention. It happens, and the narrative moves on. But this guy's at a whole nother level. His story merits 20 verses to unpack. He doesn't walk into a synagogue in the middle of a large city like chapter 1 describes. He comes out of the tombs in the middle of a night straight out of a horror movie. It's a whole other level what we're talking about here. He's violent. He has superhuman strength. A couple of the verses make clear. Chains can't restrain him. No one could bind him. And he's so unstable that the text tells us, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So what does he do when he sees Jesus coming from a distance? He runs at Jesus shouting, what do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, in God's name, don't torture me. We've already seen Jesus is Lord of the storm. He's Lord over all of disease. He is Lord over every so-called power. So how does he react at this guy running at him? We're ready for a showdown, really a takedown. There's no show. There's just a Jesus, Lord, and this guy. But instead, Jesus simply speaks a word. And if, if we've been tracking with Mark and paying a little bit of attention, what Jesus does, how he reacts, really shouldn't be a surprise to us at all. Because in the storm last week, end of chapter 4, Jesus simply spoke, and it was so. Mega calm. Nature obeyed. To a paralyzed man, Jesus simply said, get up and walk. And he did because he instantly could. To the leper, Jesus simply says, be clean, and immediately he was. But this exorcism doesn't happen instantly for some reason. Jesus instead engages in conversation. What is your name? It's a friendly way to meet somebody. What's your name? His reply, legion. Now, a legion was the largest unit of the Roman military, involving five to 6,000 soldiers. And so whether it was this man or the demons, we, we can't even sort out who's speaking, right? The, the, the being uh, is, is, is sort of unified at this point. Uh, the guy knows that there are so many demons possessing him, he can't count them. Like a prisoner surrounded by a huge army, overwhelmed. It doesn't matter how many there are. There's a legion. You're done. He might have had another reason. I'm just speculating a little bit uh, based on the historical context. Roman soldiers fighting to subdue foreign peoples far from Rome itself in Italy would have wielded absolute power, right? No no boss looking over their shoulder. Their, Their job is to conquer and to bring back the spoils of war. 
And so in wielding that kind of power, they committed all kinds of atrocities. Historians will tell us this. It's possible that this man's people, perhaps his own family, had been victims of terror and destruction at the hands of the Roman army. And if that's possible, he might have layers of PTSD on top of evil spirits that have possessed him. How messed up this guy is. Whatever his story is, there's something more complex and more serious about this man's demonic possession. Verse 8 tells us that Jesus had already issued this command, come out of this man, you impure spirit. But then he proceeds to have a conversation. Did, did Jesus wave his wand and realize nothing happened? He's got to go back and figure out, you know, recharge his spiritual battery? I don't think so. Don't miss this little detail in verse 6. The guy comes running at Jesus, shouting, and falls on his knees in front of him. It's a picture of submission when you are on your knees in front of another person because the demons know Jesus is Lord and King. And verse 7, they beg for mercy. I think it's possible that Jesus wanted to demonstrate to this man in vivid color, in high definition, through the, the drama of the whole pig situation, when this man was truly free from demonic possession and oppression. Th think of this horrible picture. Don't think too hard, but um, if a child is abused from an early age and lacks any physical affection. It's just being kept alive. It feels constantly in danger uh, for their life or their, their health or, or, or their being and is then bullied throughout his teen years. It would be foolish to expect him at the age of 25 years old in a free country, law-abiding citizens around, in a secure home with food on the table and a job bringing in income, it would be foolish to expect him to, to suddenly be free of anxiety. It'd be folly to say, what's your problem? Look at what you have. If his layers of brokenness shaped from a very early age did not experience full healing over time, It'd be foolish to uh, think that he wouldn't act like a broken, rejected, unloved, dispensable human being because that was the shaping that he had been raised in. Lifelong slaves who are suddenly free don't know how to act like free people. And very often they resort to slave mentality and slave behavior. They don't quite understand the full impact of that freedom, that new identity. And so for Jesus to give permission to the demons to enter a herd of 2,000 pigs who drown themselves in the sea, which we said last week, is a, uh, is a picture among the Jewish people of destruction and darkness and death. Could it be that this was the wisdom of a wonderful counselor, Isaiah chapter 9, tenderly caring. I'm going to present you with a picture that is undeniable. They're gone. Look at what just happened. 
The sea took them, not you. Could it be that this was also the authority of the mighty God wielding His power in banishing evil? This picture of Messiah born to us hundreds of years before Jesus came. That's the story that brings us to, secondly, the demons. Look, let's be honest with each other. We're educated 21st century people. Can we read these myths with a little knowing glance and a wink between us adults, knowing that this really isn't true? Things like this don't happen, right? We'll just go along with the story, keep this myth going for other purposes, like sometimes we do. But that's why what you think of the Bible has, a, has utmost importance whenever you think about, let alone respond to the one true God and His offer of salvation, freedom and forgiveness. Because if the Bible is a myth or, or even simply contains myth, well then who knows what's true and what's not? Worship becomes a make-your-own-Sunday kind of creation. Believe what you want, reject what you don't like. And that means faith has no substance, no real power, and there's nothing really worth living for or dying for. We've said in previous weeks, please don't think that you can just pluck Jesus and His good moral teachings out of the Bible and live according to that as if that would make any sense because Jesus, of all figures in Scripture, spent a lot of time dealing with, talking about the spiritual realm and even casting out demons. Either he was a master illusionist and a deceiver at heart and therefore a fraud, or he saw reality with spiritual eyes, spirit-filled eyes, and it was as real as what you and I see with our physical eyes all around us. A battle going on underneath all of human history and a battle for human souls. Will darkness or light win? That's what Jesus sees. We can't just say he's a good moral teacher, but this stuff didn't happen. It's all or nothing. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul warns us in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Paul says the battle for the mind is between dependence on Christ and dependence on the powers and authorities that he's talking about in Colossians chapter 2, and what he's pointing to are demonic spirits, elemental spiritual forces, just a big phrase to talk about demons. That's the battle for the mind. It's one or the other, Christ or demons. The apostle James is even more blunt. James chapter 3, verse 14, if you harbor bitter envy out of selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Look, envy and selfish ambition 
are not godly. That's not a really controversial statement to make in church. Envy, spiritual ambition, being, making it all about yourself, right? Your, your own selfish desire. That, that's not godly. That doesn't take rocket science if, if you are in church on a Sunday morning. But, Jesus, but James says a lot more than that. He says they're demonic. That's in Scripture. Whoa. David Noel shared with me this week uh, something he came across in uh, a Puritan named John Goodwin, um, paraphrasing John Goodwin, that if a Christian is not filled with the Holy Spirit, then he or she will be filled with some other spirit, lowercase s, that will lead to sin and darkness and eventually death. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be filled with some other spirit that will head in the wrong direction. Goodwin says that when a virtue or a vice is full-grown, we call it a spirit, a virtue, something that's admirable, something that reflects God, something that you want to grow in honoring God. When that gets full-grown, it's the Holy Spirit. When a vice becomes full-grown, something that's of sin becomes a different kind of spirit. This is what we find in Scripture, just two simple examples. Joshua is tasked with taking over from Moses and leading Israel at the beginning of Joshua at the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34.9 says that Joshua is now filled with the spirit of wisdom. It's a virtue wisdom that is now full grown, and Joshua is the one to lead Israel. In great contrast, hundreds of years later, when Israel as a people is accused of unfaithfulness to the Lord, the prophet Hosea calls that the spirit of prostitution. You're either filled with the Holy Spirit or you'll be filled with another kind of spirit heading in the wrong direction. What's the point I'm making here? The presence and power of demonic evil spirits is not just the stuff of horror movies or simply first century Christian stories that we might be tempted to treat as myths. The stuff of demonic possession isn't the stuff of horror movies or myths in the first century. And it's a lot more present than you might want to admit. When you allow sin to hang around and then gain access to your heart and then develop a pattern you are cultivating a spirit of, fill in the blank, lust, envy, pride, self-glory. It is spiritual disease that it will eventually kill you. It will destroy you, body and soul, now and forever. And that is not disconnected from the demonic possession that we come across in the New Testament. But in contrast, when you pursue repentance from sin, when you go deeper in trust of Jesus' sacrifice for your sin on His cross, when you pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit, like Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, to sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, to, to overflow to the, the community of faith, to be filled with thankful and submissive hearts, all ingredients of being filled with the Spirit, then what you do is you shield yourself from the influence of dark forces, and you head in the right direction towards Christ-likeness. Paul says in Galatians 5, you either live by the, the, the flesh, the sinful nature, or you live by the Spirit. 
It's either living according to darkness, which opens you up to demonic influence, or living in the light, which causes you to have more and more filling of the Holy Spirit within you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. One leads to spiritual freedom. One leads to spiritual oppression, the worst of which is connected to that really strong phrase we're dealing with here, demonic power. I'm not saying this guy deserved a legion in him because he was a sinner. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that the idea of demonic possession that seems so far out there, so far removed from our experience, may be a lot closer than we think, than we'd like to admit. So some of that is unclear. Here's what is clear. Do not play around with sin. And definitely do not play around with what is dark ideas and things and experiences. The story, the demons, lastly, the responses. You'd think these people would have thrown a party for Jesus. Because before Jesus, the beaches on the Sea of Galilee were closed. Kids weren't allowed to play outside at night. They had to come back in. The Chamber of Commerce in this region had to advertise to tourists that this guy's antics were really overblown in the media. He sticks to himself. So come and enjoy the Decapolis. And now it's like the serial killer in town has been caught. Everybody comes out and the neighbors greet each other for the first time in months. Thank you, Jesus. Finally, you got rid of him. That's not what happens. They come out of town. They see this guy for themselves. They don't even know his name. Now sitting there dressed, because he was naked all the time before, and in his right mind, they can tell. He's been freed. And like the storm in the lake with the disciples, fear turns into fear. Fear of what this guy represented and what he would do turns into something even another level. What just happened to rescue this man who was clearly in the pit of hell? Who is the Son of Man? They hear the story about the pigs, their pigs, their livelihood, and there's no celebrating Jesus. There's no simple thanks they just plead with him to go away. Why? Something so important, too important, had been lost. It had been taken away. Something that brought security, significance, pride, comfort. And when that's lost, it's devastating. You get angry, resentful. You can't forgive. You can't stop thinking about it. The Bible calls that thing or that circumstance or that person that has been lost, the Bible calls that an idol. It is something to which you have given ultimate worth, but it doesn't deserve it because only the one true God deserves that kind of worth. And it's appropriate to worship Him and Him alone. It could be that promotion could be getting married. It could be that starting position on the team. 
that next rung on the ladder that will show to everyone, including your parents, whom you could never satisfy, that you have now arrived and you don't get it. And it's devastating. You know that car insurance commercial, don't mess with my discount. <laughs> it's pretty, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's well done. People in, in normal courses of life, right, and they're, they're offended because this is so important to them. And idol is a lot more serious. Don't mess with my idol. Don't even come close because this is where I get my worth, my happiness, my joy, my contentment. And idols are so serious that you will defend them at any cost. For the people of, God, uh, for the people of this area, to be fair, they, they lost more than their discount. Their local economy just took a huge hit but they couldn't see that greatest treasure was standing right in front of them. They were blinded. Idols of money and possessions. Idols of comfort. The way things are, even when the way things are, are pretty messed up. Don't mess with my discount. Idols of, of ideas, beliefs, what I think about the world, how the world should act, how people should treat me, what's right and what's wrong things that are too important when your heart is, listen carefully, when your heart is possessed by certain idols, when your heart is possessed by the false promises of those idols, and by deception, you, you, you fall for that deception, you think that it will deliver, and then that idol is taken away from you, you cannot see the real treasure that God would long with his generous heart of love for you to have and to enjoy. You say, Pastor, possessed is a strong word. I know it. But the language of the Bible is that strong because the consequences are that deadly and eternal. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Two ways, no more than two. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I've called the sermon, Possessed by Whom? Because it's not freedom from sin and now I'm, I can be myself. It, you, you, you can only be this, the self that God has created you to be in the fullness of your humanity if you move from slavery to sin, can't help but fall for its deception, and in the freedom of Christ become slaves to righteousness. Doesn't make sense. It's upside-down thinking, but only in devotion to being possessed by the one who bought you at the price of his own son can you live the life you were always meant to live. The question, to whom do you belong, is a question of possession. Is, it is a question of rule and submission. So again, if you're allowing a vice to have a place in your life, if you excuse or you laugh off sinful habits, if you have never considered what idols 
may be present and powerful in your life, then you are allowing a spirit of darkness and death to hang around and potentially take you down. And you're moving along the same continuum that leads to evil spirits owning you, having control over you. The only alternative given to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ is to cultivate a life filled with the Holy Spirit possessed by Jesus himself, the true King and Messiah. The people here can't comprehend what kind of power freed this guy. Who is the Son of Man? And in their blindness, they pled with him to go away, to leave them alone. Wherever you are spiritually, I would plead with you today, do the exact opposite. Ask Jesus to stay. Even if you don't know what to make of him, ask him to stay. Commit to getting to know him, reading the Bible, praying to him, asking that, that he would reveal himself more clearly, and joining God's people by coming here to Glenrock to be a part of this community as you grow. Jesus doesn't let the man go with him, though he wants to. He begs him. He says, no. Why? Because he's sending him on a mission. He says, go and tell. That's it. The 10 cities of the Decapolis are an international mission field. And Jesus has a job for this guy. His simple story will be along these lines. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Who did this? Jesus. He is king he is Savior. Trust in Him. And the message of salvation spread. Mark tells us at the very end of our passage, all the people were amazed. As we close, remember how the scene begins. Jesus and His disciples landing on the shore, this one lone, crazed guy coming at Him. One man broken physically, relationally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, in every way. And Jesus is all about addressing his personal needs and bringing him an abundance of healing. He doesn't just preach, he acts. He doesn't just denounce spiritual oppression, he relieves it. He doesn't just speak against isolation and relational breakdown. He restores everything that has been lost. That's why as we grow in our understanding of and scope of and depth of and ugliness of racism in any form, we should speak up and say, that is not of God that is not living according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should speak up and say that out loud, and we should do something about it. Listen to James again. James chapter 2, verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Jesus does both. There's not a complete gospel without Jesus doing both. And there isn't a complete people of God without the church proclaiming salvation 
and demonstrating these foretastes amongst our neighbors, especially the least and the lost, the oppressed. Um, closing back, back here to Mark 5, la- truly last thought. I know I'm going long to this, to this morning. When Mark's gospel reaches its climactic end in chapter 15 and 16, but especially 15, Jesus the Messiah will be naked and abandoned. He will be shouting out with a loud voice and bleeding. He will be outside of town amongst the tombs. The cave in which he's buried is right there next to the hill of Calvary. The demons caused all of that to happen in this man's life, this poor man's life. But the same kind of Mark 5 experience that Jesus allows himself to go through will bring about the final defeat of the same demons. Not just 2,000 running into the lake, but the final and utter and lasting and forever defeat of not only demons, but the destruction of evil and sin and even death itself on the last day when Jesus returns. Shockingly, this King Jesus who wields all power as Lord of lords will wield his greatest power by allowing evil spiritual forces to conspire against him to lead him to the cross. Isaiah 53.5 spoke of the Messiah 800 years before he came, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Our living is only possible through Jesus' dying. Our forgiveness and freedom and this man's is only possible through Jesus receiving condemnation that our sins deserve as he hung on the cross, abandoned. Believe in Jesus. Trust in this true Messiah and King. Follow after him. He is the only one stronger than any trial you're enduring, any sickness, any pain, any disappointment, any frustrations, any idols that have lost he will provide a hundredfold instead. Let's pray. Jesus, who are you? There's a sense in which we'll spend eternity in your presence learning that answers to that question. But today we pray that you would sufficiently make clear to any here in this room or watching at home on a live stream who you are. Holy Spirit, penetrate hearts to enable faith to spring to life that men and women and children might profess with their lips flowing out of their hearts the truth of that question, that you, Jesus, are Lord and Savior and there is no other. You are King over all of creation and it is our greatest joy and privilege to bow down before you in willing submission to be slaves to righteousness that we might truly be free. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.